All right, friends, welcome back to House Wine. Uh, this is a show for anyone who would like to know about wine, to learn about wine, to drink good wine. If you're a self-proclaimed wine nerd, uh, my name is Rachel. I'm the host. I am uh, the writer, the producer of this show. I'm also a certified sommelier from Toronto, and I have my little pillow fort uh, all set up today in my room so that I can uh, talk to you all about phylloxera. So uh, now I will just get right into it. I think I have, this is going to be kind of um, like a mini-sode style. I've been sort of uh, easing, well, easing. I uh, I, took, I didn't post for a couple weeks, uh, and I felt bad about it. But in all truthfulness, I have been doing driver's ed and it has taken up a lot of the the time that I would normally devote to podcasting which has been mm, kind of sad for me but I managed to write a few episodes and sort of get caught up uh, so it will be regular posting from now on and I feel like I started this season and a lot of things have happened and it's been kind of spotty uh, since I since I got back at it but I feel like now we're in a good rhythm we're in a good place Restaurants are back open in Ontario for indoor dining. I have like a nice schedule, a nice rhythm. You know, my driver's head is almost done. So we're going to uh, get sort of back to regular scheduled programming. And yeah, today we're going to start it off with something nice and easy and fun and light and historical and biological, I think. Yeah, bio, biological <laughs> biology. And that is, of course, uh, the louse, the louse that ruined everything. So I've mentioned this subject, I would say, probably in about 90% of all the episodes that I've made so far. Uh, but I realized as I was thinking about things to write about and to talk about that we have uh, touched base on it, but we've never really dived into it. So like I said, this is going to be kind of a mini-sode, but like a mini-sode deep dive on what exactly phylloxera is, the history of it, the impact of it, the places that have escaped this plague, how they avoided it, because it's affected wine a lot. And in all honesty, had we not adapted to this louse, then there would kind of be no wine or wine would be very different. You know, there would be nothing but Argentinian Malbec on the market. So without ado, let's uh, talk about not why I didn't post for two weeks, but about the louse that shook the wine world and almost ruined everything. Let's talk about phylloxera. So what is it? I mention it a lot. It comes up all the time when you talk about wine. You hear it, you hear people sort of casually mention it, and it's this kind of like scientific name for this bug that comes up when people are talking about wine. Different kinds of soils and also kind of just generally wine history. Well, it exactly is as it has been described. It is a louse, and it is in the family of other such lice, but before you go thinking like, um, you know, head lice, phylloxera is really more commonly associated or related to rather aphids. This is a plant eating louse and much more of sort of like a garden pest than the kind of thing that uh, 
crawls in your bed at night. Now, from what I read from the research I have done, and I am no biologist, uh, I am no insect studier, but phylloxera has four life stages. And each life stage kind of takes place on a different part of the grapevine. Grapevines are really phylloxera's home, their favorite food, the place that they mate. It, it does everything, or it has everything that this bug needs to survive. And each life stage kind of takes place on a different part of the vine, including one part of the vine during one life stage, which is the rootstock, which is underground, which makes phylloxera nearly impossible to kill through spraying insecticides, which is why all conventional methods of coming after this louse failed and how the great French wine blight got started in the first place. So at different life stages, phylloxera will eat the leaves of the grapevine, which is also bad, but not so bad that the vine will die completely. But during its second life stage, it likes to feed on the roots of the vine. And essentially what it does is it bites away these little holes in the root, and then it sucks the saps and the fluids from the vine. And remember, this is a microscopic louse. So one or two, they're not really going to do much damage. But a whole horde of phylloxera are going to do actually quite a bit of damage. The real damage happens when the roots are actually left exposed for a long time and are subject to further infections that don't even really include phylloxera. And we're talking things like fungal infections and rot. And once that happens, the vine dies completely. So you can have these, you know, beautiful 65-year-old Grenache vines, these like huge old knobby vines that make beautiful grapes with long, deep roots, and they're gone in just kind of like a year uh, after the phylloxera gets to it and the roots start to mold and they've been exposed to this bug. Now, this little bug is not native to Europe. It is an invasive species. So there are American grapevines and there are European grapevines. And the wines that we like to drink are, for the most part, the European variety, which is none other, of course, than Vitis vinifera. All grapes that we love are Vitis vinifera, but just mutations of the same grape, really. Chardonnay, yes. Cabernet Sauvignon, yes. Nebbiolo, yes. Even like your weirdo grape varieties like Hungarian Ferment or Georgian Savarapi, they are all Vitis vinifera. And they have no natural resistance to phylloxera. Because why would they? It didn't exist in Europe until the mid-1800s. Now, American grapevines, and these are all like the technical Latin names. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, you know, grade 10 biology, when they would like be like, oh, genus, species. That, that's all I remember. Genus, species, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the American grape varieties, your Vitis Lambrusca, or Labrusca. I always want to say Lambrusca, like Lambrusco, but it's not. It's Labrusca. And Vitis Riparia, these have all evolved to have a natural resistance to phylloxera. And how did they do it? Well, they have roots <laughs> that sit in the ground, just like every other plant waiting to get eaten. Yes, they do. But 
When Phylloxera comes across a riparia vine and eats the root, the North American vine secretes this kind of sticky sap that basically chokes out the phylloxera before it can even finish eating. And even more, it clogs up that hole that was created by the phylloxera in the first place, kind of like a little band-aid protecting it from infection. Now, I feel like in one episode, and I can't remember which one, and I'm not going to go back through the catalog to remember which one it was, but I'm pretty sure we did talk about, um, I can't remember if it was either Thomas Jefferson and or Benjamin Franklin, but I think it might have been in the Napa episode. All to say, these two were huge fans of wine, and they were both really into Bordeaux and really into Madeira. And they were very keen to start making wine in the U.S. way, way back in the very early days uh, before they had even started growing the Mission Grape in California. They planted vineyards in Virginia and they all died. And they would sometimes last a few years, uh, even enough time to produce a little bit of fruit and make a little bit of wine. But eventually, after a few years, they would all always die. And the reason for this was due to none other, of course, than phylloxera. Though at the time, no one knew phylloxera even existed yet, because they were importing their grapes from the great wine regions of Europe. They were really looking to try and make like the next American Burgundy or an American-style Bordeaux. And phylloxera itself is actually best documented in the first attempts to grow wine in what is now Florida. And there is quite an extensive amount of writing on this from people in Florida, mostly French settlers, and also Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson themselves. And this was sort of the thing that sort of started uh, sparking the conversation about the difference between American grape varieties and European grape varieties where they could grow, where they couldn't grow, and why they couldn't grow. But it wouldn't be for another 100 years until they discovered that the reason why they couldn't grow there was phylloxera in the first place. So by the end of the 1800s, this was known as the Great French Wine Blight. It came in through Chateau neuf de pape most likely, they say, And in just a few years, it had spread not just through all of France, but around most of the continent of Europe. Now, we know that there are a few exceptions. There are some things that phylloxera doesn't like. It doesn't like sand. It's too hard to move around in. It doesn't like schist. It's too stony. There's not enough actual soil to move around in. So, for instance, many of the great Riesling vineyards of the Mosul in Germany which are very schist-heavy, have been spared from phylloxera and are still grown on their original root stalks. But much like in the New World and in Europe today, phylloxera never went away. It's still everywhere. They just adapted. Places like Mendoza or Chile, which are very high in the Andes, with these really sandy soil contents, have remained phylloxera-free. Chile's also a bit of an exception, though, in that they have extremely strict laws regarding quarantine and import for potential invasive species. Kind of like Australia, though they do have phylloxera in Australia. It got there really before anyone cared about the preservation of natural biomes. Uh, Kind of like in old times when you could just, like, get on a boat with smallpox and your pet cat and they would just drop you off on an island where neither of those things existed and were like, oh, well, who 
cares about the indigenous population anyway, but one day we'll we'll talk about Australian wine history and Australian wine law. It's actually very fascinating, but it does have uh, a bit a bit of a dark past. Uh, but back to phylloxera, though. It was discovered by Jules Emile Planchon in the early 1860s, and by then it was already too late. Within 10 years of its discovery, the production of French wine was reduced by half. And if you would like to know more about how this affected the counterfeit market, you can listen to the episode on Chateau Neuf de Pape. We get into it. But in the 1800s, or sorry, 1880s, it was discovered in Texas of all places that if you took the root of an American vine variety and put it onto a vine of European Vitis vinifera, that there would be a natural immunity to the louse and that the vine would be able to grow. Of course, this was brought back to France and many of the French farmers were outraged. Houses and winemakers who adopted the grafting technique were dubbed chemists, which apparently was like a slur at the time, like you chemist. Anyways, or they were called, maybe even worse, Americanists. But over time, uh, this did turn out to be the most effective way to stave off the devastation of the louse in vineyards. And it was adopted all over the world because it wasn't just in Europe that this was an issue. Napa and California have had even severe, devastating phylloxera outbreaks as recently as the 1980s. So this is like a, an ongoing and developing problem. There was, of course, uh, another method, and that is the development of hybrid grapes. Grapes that were bred from American and European varieties, and these are planted and grown today. I think most notably we spoke of them very recently, actually, when we talked about Armagnac. Uh, in the episode, they were growing uh, hybrid Baco Noir and Baco Blanc, and these grapes are desirable for a number of reasons, not just because they're resistant to phylloxera, but also because they are more resistant than things like frosts and colder temperatures found also in North America. The downside, though, is that they just don't make the best still dry wines, which is why you will usually find them used for things like distillate. Or here in Ontario, we use the hybrid Vidal for ice wine because it can withstand really cold temperatures. And of course, there's like odd exceptions to the rule that phylloxera devastated everything. It didn't devastate everything. There are some holdouts of things that just, for some reason, were never affected by phylloxera. There are vines in Champagne that are neither on sandy soil nor on schist and have remained phylloxera immune. Uh, some people say it's because the cellars that they dig um, from the chalk underground underneath the whole region of Champagne have somehow disrupted phylloxera. I don't know how true that is. Uh, also, the grape Assyrtico, the native grape of Santorini, is thought to have some resistance to the louse, even though there's a lot of people who say that this may in fact actually be due to the volcanic soil on the island and not due to the grape's natural resistance. So who knows? I think that people uh, who don't have it are mostly just happy that they don't have to deal with it. If you want to try a wine that is ungrafted, a wine that is wholly its own vine, 
then look for maybe like a Montestrel from southern Spain. There's very sandy soils there. They don't have a lot of phylloxera. Uh, likewise, there are some phylloxera-free areas in Australia that never, never got affected. And phylloxera never managed to migrate all the way to Western Australia. So the wines of Margaret River are all completely ungrafted. Honestly, though, I don't think anyone can really tell the difference between a grafted and an ungrafted vine. It's more kind of like a, a novelty than anything. And that's kind of phylloxera in a nutshell. Or maybe it's just uh, better dubbed this week's The More You Know. But as always, it was horrible. A lot of people lost their livelihood. A lot of people lost their farms. And uh, we found a solution. But it still exists and it's still out there. And there still are some people dealing with it. So as always, if you'd like to know more, all my sources are in the show notes. But honestly, I won't lie. Wikipedia has great articles on this. And if you do take the time to scroll down and check out those sources, then I would also love if you took a few extra seconds while you're down there to rate, leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, turn on that little notification button, because this podcast is 100% independent. It's written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rachel, every week. Uh, If you would like to request an episode or you noticed uh, a mistake or a correction, uh, please feel free to reach out at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. You can also check up on the podcast or make requests at housewinepodcast on Instagram. Or uh, if that's not enough, if you want to see what I'm up to, my name is Rachel. That's Rachel with an A-E-L. And Picard, like the captain, and you can also check me out on Instagram. I hope you found this episode uh, useful and helpful and fun and informative. And I hope you try some, uh, maybe some like fun, funky, ungrafted wines this week. Go out, grab an Assyrtico, grab a Margaret River, get something you know, that's not necessarily in your wheelhouse and uh, enjoy because that's what wine is for. I'll see you guys next week and we'll talk about something that makes my skin just kind of crawl with more my brain jumble or something. It's South African wine law. We're going to talk about South African wine law next week Um, because you guys weirdly love wine law episodes. I love that you love them. All right. Have a good week, guys. Bye.